I, I think we will go back out to the VC market, but we're going to do it from a, you know, we've now got a year plus of revenue coming through the books. We've now got deal pipelines set up. And we're going to go there, get growth capital, and hopefully not have to give away as much of the business or as much directional control as we were previously looking at. Hey, this is Jesse here, and you're about to hear my chat with Steve Gray from ZeroFlux, which provides pricing technology for sportsbook operators. Steve talks about how he sees the betting product landscape and what he and his team at ZeroFlux are doing to innovate within it. He also discusses the realities of life as a supplier waiting on operator roadmaps, his decision to bootstrap ZeroFlux, the importance of having honest advisors, and so much more. I really enjoyed chatting with Steve and I hope you enjoyed this episode. But just a quick reminder before we get going today, the Betting Startups newsletter is the only weekly publication dedicated to the industry's early stage ecosystem and it's the easiest way to keep your finger on the pulse of it all. The 10 seconds it takes you to subscribe will be the highest ROI use of your time today. So head on over to news.bettingstartups.com and smash that subscribe button. All right, we are back on the Betting Startups podcast. We're up to episode 74. And for this one, I'm joined by Steve from ZeroFlux. Steve, it is early morning over on the other side of the world where you are down under in Australia. How's everything going on your end today? Oh, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're heading into winter here in Australia. Everyone thinks of it as a warm, temperate country, but right now it's absolutely freezing. But, you know, at the office now, settled in, you know, but a nice early start. Really great to have you here, Steve. I've been sort of passively following ZeroFlex's story for some time now, so really happy to finally have you on and dive into things. Um, I'd love to start with just the name itself, ZeroFlex. Can you give us a bit of a sense of what that name means, the origins of it, and, and kind of how, uh, yeah, how you came up with it? Um, I've always been a bit of an internal marketeer when it comes to naming and branding. I do PowerPoint presentations. So, so picking a name was one of the most fun parts of the project. And ZeroFlex is because, you know, uh, on, officially it's because there's zero fluctuations because you only move the price if it's wrong. Uh, but obviously we're basically sticking our thumbs, uh, we're sticking our finger up to the industry a little bit in terms of just the way things have always been done. Because the product for same game has been the same on every single operator you look at. It's A and B and C and D, and that's your bet. Um, and so we're just, we're going to upset the Apple cart there. That's where the branding really came from. Cool. Well, look, um, before we get into everything, let's talk a bit about you. Can you give folks listening a bit of a sense of your background, your journey, and kind of maybe the major chapters of everything you've done up until you founded ZeroFlux? Yeah. So um, previously, I'd worked in the UK in lots of digital companies. Um, but one of my most interesting experiences was working at Compare the Market which is very similar to betting. It's just you're betting on one side of the transaction only. You're doing insurance and so okay, this, this might happen. So you know, let, let's lay that bet. And so worked there and I, I saw the business transition from a very uh, acquisition focused business to a brand led business where we were marketing on you know, features and a pair of the Meerkat toys. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that in the States. But then uh, at some point then I ended up uh, going through a bit of a divorce. And so one of my friends, he'd migrated out here to Australia. He, taken years to do the process and um he said hey it looks like you're having a rough time do you want to come you know do a reset over here in australia so i i never been to australia before i never really thought about it and suddenly i'm on a plane with five t-shirts and my laptop and my snowboarding gear and i'm like yeah I'm, I'm, I'm now relocating and i came over here and um i got into the gambling industry because i, I started working on slot machine command and control systems um, I helped design part of the system that is pairing the state of New South Wales, which is the world's largest regulated slots market. There's more slots in, New South, in Australia than there are in Vegas. It's like a $220 billion industry here. And so I got into that and learned to love the product. 
because it's just part of the natural conversation here. And then it's kind of stepped out into lotteries and uh, sports book operations uh, because the company was a combined entity. A um, little bit of segue into some other stuff. I know I ended up working for uh, what was Ladbrokes Australia at the time. And then through a series of like, you know, Pac-Man thought this one eats that one eats that one. Um, GBC bought Ladbrokes, then GBC became Entain. And so I worked for that company. I, I led the trading solutions team there uh, for a couple of years. And that was an interesting journey because um, that was another transition, very similar, you know, uh, where they were focusing more on like product and differentiation. And there's also a lot of really good mentors there in terms of leadership that I could uh, look at. And so uh, eventually at some point, it's okay, I'm going to go off and start my own show. And uh, do something a little bit different, but um, you know, stay in the industry because it's, um, I, I love the product. I'm a, you know, I'm a bit of a gambler myself and I do, I do enjoy the industry. Nice one. Well, you enjoyed it enough that you stayed in it and actually, uh, yeah, started, started zero flux. And I'd love to talk a little bit about, I guess, just the, the timing of, of your time at Entain and, you know, formerly GBC, formerly Ladbrokes, as you mentioned, you know, kind of where were you at at that time in your career? And I guess sort of what prompted you to think that you wanted to take the leap from sort of the career ladder, uh, with a large operator and kind of take the leap out onto your own and, and, you know, try and disrupt the market in your own unique way. Well, well, getting into the Ladbrokes business in Australia, I had a friend who worked there who kind of recommended me for the role. And so I was, at the time, I was working for a consulting body shop. They would just put you in somewhere and abandon you. And said, oh yeah, come work with Ladbrokes. And they had this, uh, so they had this uh, CTO at the time and he was um, a little bit, I, I think a little bit eccentric. And I had this job interview. I went there and he came in and there was three guys and he, the C, uh, CIO would come in and he would talk to me for five seconds, then leave. And they come back in and follow up 10 minutes later. And the whole interview went like this. So I was like, that's a bit strange, you know, but I, I got the job despite almost never having spoken to the guy. And I arrive on day one to find out the guy's been fired. And I work for a manager who was the interim replacement. And my, the manager beneath him, who I report to, had never met me before either. It's like, hey, um, we've never met you. We have no idea who you are, but you work here now. And HR says that we're going to keep you. I was like, oh, okay. So uh, that was my introduction to the Ladbrokes business. And so um, I kind of like made my niche here, like, because the whole business went through a bit of turmoil, a bit of shaking the tree, uh, worked through that business for a couple of years, including through the acquisition of the Neds business and helping them basically reposition it, become one of the biggest operators and modernizing their technical platform, which was a really exciting journey. Um, but I, I always stayed kind of close to the, the feeds and sport book and data side of things, because that, that was kind of my passion area. Gotcha. Well, let's, I guess, segue from there quite nicely into what you guys are up to at Zero Flux. And, you know, maybe just for the benefit of folks listening that aren't familiar with what you're up to, can you give us just a high concept overview to start with? What is it that you do and what's just the overall value prop to the market? So at Zero Flux, we provide same game multi, same game parlay for your sports book. So if you're a sports book operator and you want to extend out with same game product, um, we do that. Our major point of differentiation, though, isn't that we provide one set of same game prices to the whole of the industry. But instead, what we do is we take your spreads, your totals, your markets, we read those in and your markets drive our simulations, which means that we do bespoke same game for everyone. If you think it's going to be a rainy day and you want to bring the total down three points, you do it. And our simulations and your same game trade will reflect that. From that, then we can generate all these extra markets, extra content. But the main challenge there is obviously, you know, when you're doing this for everyone in parallel, independently. Um, yeah, you've got to have a, a really sharp technical engine behind it that powers it. And a lot of the time we spent building that investment, which was a bit of a, a scary work because obviously it's not something that customers can immediately tangibly touch. So that was challenging. But yeah, that, that's what we do. And then 
now we've got that engine in place, we can do all these extra products over the top. So um, things like the same game combinations product, which lets you do combo bets of same games. Um, so if you want to do a system bet of like three different first tries, work, we can do any of four people to score the first touchdown and any two of these three to score any time touchdown. Um, you know, bets that physically aren't possible at any other operator. I think one of our advisors, Benji said, you know, it's really good to let customers explore their theory of the game. And that's really where we see ourselves positioned. Got you. And you know, you're out there, uh, ostensibly talking to operators and working with some operators. I'm just curious, Steve, like, you know, as you're out there having these conversations, you know, what are you hearing in terms of feedback about sort of the broad types of new product that operators are looking to add to their mix these days? And, you know, it sounds like zero flux has quite a unique spin on, you know, the same game parlay concept, but just generally speaking, like, yeah, you know, how are, I guess the operators thinking about new product and, 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 you know, how does zero flux fit into that? Well, I mean, the. At an operator level, I think there's a general understanding that the way things are, particularly in the States, cannot be the way for the future. You know, um, there's just a very heavy emphasis on acquisition and, you know, and, the, and these massive costs associated with that. So focusing on things they talk about above the line that are, you know, um, engaging, but not expensive. So, you know, same game, obviously, if you look at um, the trade that sportsbooks do, the top 10 operators look at their annual reports that, you know, the, the differentiation between, you know, a, a small bar and a big bar is your same game performance. Live and in-play is interesting, and that's an area where I think there's going to be a lot of interesting play. But I think that there's a, a real hype bubble around uh, micro-betting. But if you look collectively at the macro side of things and look at how micro-betting operators go, they are edging slowly towards traditional sports book because that's where the handle is. But operators we see you know, the, um, improving the same game products, improving uh, market depth and offering more content, because the trouble is, once the NFL season finishes, once the NBA, you know, once the last dunk of the NBA is done, you're on baseball and there's nothing else. Um, you know, uh, the summer league is on now, but it's it's not the same kind of betting phenomenon. And I think that's one of the areas where the industry should be looking to fill out that content calendar because you've got these customers now, and what are they going to be betting on in July, August, September, you know, until the NFL comes back? You know, how are things looking from sort of the traction and progress perspective, right? Where do you sort of say zero flux is at in this uh, growth journey and, you know, um, however you want to sort of measure or define that. Can you give us some sort of context as to how it's all going so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going pretty well. So we, we you know, we, we, we're sending invoices out and they're getting paid by customers at the moment, which is an exciting moment for us. You know, uh, a, lot, a lot of businesses don't survive to this point. Um, we are still burning more money than we are making, but. Yeah, you know, we're getting good traction. We've got integration. So we've actually just uh, recently signed a deal, which we'll probably announce sometime next week. Uh, but it's with a platform operator here in Australia, which allows us to get into a range of sports books in one transaction. It's a really long top from the handshake, the money. In some cases, you know, it's the business may go just over 18 months. And this the day one people I was talking to are still on board, but some other people have come along the journey a little bit quicker. So um, it's, you know, the business go well and we just, there's, there's two challenges there. One is execution bandwidth, getting that, you know, more product, more features out there, be more compelling, um, a completeness of vision. And the other one is just surviving through these integrations because sports web operators have a very lengthy integration cycle. And, you know, if something is pending in August, they'll go, okay, well, we'll come back to you after the NFL season. So you wait until Super Bowl to touch the next line of code. And that caught us off guard last year. We weren't really emotionally prepared for that. So we're, we're going and then suddenly, okay, cool, game's on. And there's like, okay, well, what was the even six months then? You know, it's, yeah. And it was a real awkward moment for us. And then I guess as far as like the different geographical markets, you referenced this uh, pending announcement with an Australian platform provider. 
presumably you're looking at the U.S. market as well. Like, is there a particular market that you think is best suited for the Zero Flux product at this stage? Or are you just trying to sort of get it anywhere and everywhere to the extent that you can? Or do you have a particular focus uh, given uh, sort of the resource constraints like any early stage company has? Well, obviously, uh, being resource constrained, we want to target integration with platform operators as much as possible mm -hmm. or scaled operators. Because, you know, uh, as much as I want to do a bespoke integration with every small Twilsburg operator, like it's, you know, I don't have enough people to do it, uh, not enough hours in the day. Uh, geographically, though, I think it's kind of interesting. Here in Australia, the trade is 80%, 90% racing and 20% sport. And only about 1% of that is in play because of regulations. You have to call the inter call up on the phone and speak to a human to place a bell means uh, or in play game here. Whereas, you know, in the, in the States, you just walk in and off you go. So in the U.S., we're, we're quite lucky that because the U.S., the trade is very concentrated on the four big sports. And so by having four models, we can service 90% of the trade. Whereas over here in Australia, we'll, we'll need many more models to cover that same amount of trade. So uh, we'll be more selective there. Um, it's similar with the European Latin, you know, like uh, if you've got soccer, a massive amount of handball is covered off the bat. So um, we're, we're prepared to work with pretty much all uh, geographies. It's just a case of finding something that's time effective for us as a business. And, you know, we're, we're at our execution bandwidth is the challenging point here. Zooming out a little bit, just, I guess, you know, thinking about what, again, you guys are up to and bringing sort of a novel and unique approach to the same game parlay product, you know, just the state of sports betting product innovation at large. And again, drawing upon, I guess, your experience as well uh, on the operator side. Currently today, mid-2023, how do you rate the industry overall, the product innovation in general? And I guess a follow-up question to that would be like, Aside from the work you're doing at Zero Flux, is there any other sort of example of interesting or innovative things you've seen outside of what you and your team are working on? Yeah, um, I'm just trying to think that. So there, there is one uh, product that I saw fairly recently that was kind of interesting. Uh, and that was um, someone had done this thing where it was a variation on the you know, points bet where you have that, you, you go from four to five points and you, know, you get that spread and that's your bet. So our, our system can do that kind of bet where you say, okay, oh, I'm going to bet over 22 and under 30 and get that range. So someone's come up with a product where they basically take that and the more your team wins by, the larger your return is. And they, um, that's, that's kind of interesting. I, I, I didn't quite buy the mathematics of it. I probably didn't look into it too deeply, but yeah, there is lots of interesting new ways to do product out there. And so, um, yeah, you're going to be, keep your eyes open for, um, but to the general innovation, I think. Right now, the state of the U.S. market, particularly, is very stagnant. The offer from if you go if you're at the big, you're you're the top ten brands there. You couldn't put a play card between them in terms of product and content depth. You know, um, the operators who came primarily from that fantasy space have got a bit more of the social stuff going on with their platforms. Um, but I think some of the interesting stuff that's going on here in Australia, uh, I think it's only until regulation catches up with it, is a push towards socializing the betting experience because we can't induce you to bed. But if we put you in a friends group, they can induce you to bed. And I think there's, that's kind of interesting. And I think regulation is going to catch that one up. But I think socialization of it, uh, more integration, you got to start innovating in areas like esports and MMA. So, uh, for example, uh, the UFC betting, you, right now you've got your head to head and you maybe a five way victory market. Um, some operators now are pushing 80 to hundred markets on UFC, significant strike counts and so forth. And that will really engage those like that neo generation of betters that are coming in now who will never bet on a horse race in their life, but they will eventually start working on, they'll start betting on products like that. And then you're based there in Australia, which is obviously uh, an extremely mature gambling market. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the data still points to Australia per capita being sort of the most 
I guess, active betters in the world. You know, if you take lessons, I guess, from a mature market like Australia or even the UK for that matter, and compare it to the more nascent US market, how do you see things playing out in the coming years for the US, Steve? I think one of the interesting things will be um, taxation, regulation, and uh, harm minimization. These will be areas where things really ramp up. So here in Australia, being a, you know, a, a fairly mature market, as you said, there's all kinds of things, for example, a lot of operators registered in one particular state in Australia that had favorable tax. And then all the other states started missing on tax revenue. So that now there is a tax based on where you are betting from that that state collects. So if I'm betting with sportsbook operator and I'm using, uh, I'm in Nevada and I'm betting through a New Jersey operator, Nevada should be collecting some of that tax. And so that's, that's the, the regime here in Australia. Uh, the other thing as well is essentially there is a blanket ban on what we call inducements here. You, you can't have $5,000 sign up now and like, you know, get A-list movie actors pushing product. You know, um, it's going to be a, a bit more tongue in cheek, focus on the, uh, the thrill of the pun, the experience of the bet and not the fact that you're getting a hundred dollars back when you sign up. And so there's a, a lot of, uh, that tightened up and that is operators hated that when it came in, uh, at the same time, I think gambling is a little bit too much of the national conversation here. So I do think there is a, a moderation point that needs to be hit. Uh, but I think that will be something where eventually uh, the American public will eventually start getting sick, seeing gambling ads, and there'll be a, a bit of back pressure to throttle it back to a steady medium. And operators who have already grown and scaled at that point will be cemented in. You know, the top three or four operators here in Australia, you know, they're, they're there for life now. There's, you, you can't, uh, there's an operator who's tried recently enough. You really can't start a new one because you can't market the way you need to to grow those businesses. So it's, uh, and everyone else invites to the remainder of the market share, but it's, it's one of these things that I think as well, the pressure there as well, the complexity of meeting all the reporting requirements, the hard minimization requirements, the fact you can't market the way you used to, this, this is going to drive a lot of consolidation globally. You know, everyone thought the UK gambling report was going to be the end of the world, but it, it was fairly, it, it was all stuff that we knew was coming, but I, I do think consolidation in all the key uh, geographies, this will be less operators because there's, if you haven't got scale, it's going to be very challenging. I guess for you and Zeroflux as a, you know, a supplier to these operators, I mean, what does the prospect of consolidation sort of look like for you and sort of, do you, I guess, perceive that to be a concern or a threat or does you sort of welcome that dynamic if it plays out that way? I, I think it creates a bit of an opportunity for us because before consolidation is an option, people will start looking at like, how can I compete in a, uh, a non-inducement way? How can I get more product on the board? How can I get more engaging things for customers to do? How can I advertise something that guy doesn't have? And so I think that's where we can come in and provide a lot of value there. And you know, operators who want to differentiate without buying the customer for cash in hand. And that's the section we really want to target. For sure. Let's shift a little bit and talk about the capital required to finance all of this stuff you're doing. And you know, there's a big R&D aspect to the product that ZeroFlux is bringing to market and that all costs money, as we know. You know, when you and I had our, uh, our, our prep call for this uh, conversation today, you know, you had mentioned that you've primarily bootstrapped ZeroFlux thus far. Yep. Um, and number one, I mean, that's fantastic. And, and, and kudos to you and the team for that. But I'm curious, you know, at the beginning stages, you know, the, the sort of default, I think, assumption for many entrepreneurs and founders is, to follow the path of, of, you know, raising some money and, and sort of going on that fundraising trajectory, let's call it. So I'm curious for you, Steve, you know, what fed into the initial decision to try and bootstrap it? And I guess just generally speaking, like, how do you think about the role of external capital? So when I started the business, I had this idea that I was going to, uh, I'll buy a laptop, I'll go to a co-working space and there'll be me three months and I'm just going to crank this bad boy out, you know, like, and I'll be in the market 
and I'll make it up first customer. I'll grow organically. Um, and then, um, I'll go to VCs and make money out. Yeah. Cause if you watch Silicon Valley, that's basically the dream. And so that, that was what was in my head and it just didn't really work out that way. Um, particularly as a result of the pandemic, once the, the digital boom had kind of subsided a little bit, we found there really wasn't a lot of venture left in the venture capital industry. And we, we had a bit of like my, my partner and I, we had a bit of money in reserve, you know, been a, a good couple of years for us. And so, okay, well, we'll, we'll just solo this out. And every time we've engaged, uh, I've had three or four term sheets slide across the table to me. And the challenging thing there is you want to find uh, a good alignment. Like, uh, you want someone to really help grow your business and, um, but also be interested in engaging and they believe in what you're doing. And they're not just looking for that quick, dirty 10 X and, and out because we, one thing we weren't sure, and this is one of the challenging things is we're not sure on money. So we don't have to take a deal. It's primarily money. So we, we got lucky in that regard. But also as well, we opened it up so that uh, members of the team also believe they can buy in and, you know, and own a bit more to stake the business. So, um, some of our key staff are, you know, on substantial equity portions of the business. Um, but it means that as a team, we've, we haven't had to, we don't live or die by the signature of a VC. We'd love to work with one eventually. It's just a case that we've got to find one who's our interest in their investors align. And there's, 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 uh, there's always been that one line in every term sheet, like, we, 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 we can't engage with this one, you know, uh, wanted to speak and by some jurisdiction miles away that our lawyer didn't understand, uh, another, and, and also conflate service and equity, uh, another one almost wanted us to torpedo a deal. And it was like, we redlined around uh, those issues, but yeah, you know, I, I think we will go back out to the VC market, but we're going to do it from a, you know, we've now got a year plus of revenue coming through the books. We've now got deal pipeline set up. And we're going to go there, get growth capital and not, hopefully not have to give away as much of the business or as much directional control as we were previously looking at. And I guess, as you think about the prospect of bringing in institutional investors, VCs, you know, do you think about potentially working with ones that are focused on the industry specifically, or are you a bit more agnostic to that and open to uh, speaking with ones that, uh, you know, touch other verticals, other industries as well, or have you sort of thought much about kind of what the, that fit looks like from that perspective in terms of how they can better support you? and your team to, you know, scale and grow in addition to, of course, providing the capital and then providing additional value. One of the challenging things obviously with the sector is just nine out of 10 VCs globally will not touch the gaming sector. And that's challenging because obviously um, it limits your pool. I mean, uh, there's like you know, a couple of firms everyone knows the name of who are kind of the, certainly the, the loudest voices in the capital space in the, in the industry. And I, I think, you know, um, We'd love to work with those guys. We also work with externals as well, because they, sometimes they bring out, uh, they bring a different set of eyeballs to it. They'll look at it, uh, you know, maybe look at take the product in a direction we hadn't thought of. But um, yeah, we're, we're open to working with pretty much anyone in in those spaces. But we just find that inherently, people who aren't already in the gambling industry generally don't want to touch the gambling industry, and so that's one of our main challenge points. Yeah, fair enough, and also a sentiment I've heard echoed by many previous guests on this podcast. So you're certainly not alone in in having that perspective. Um, Steve, I also want to ask a little bit about, you know, mentorship and, and getting advisors around you and, you know, for yourself as a, I guess, a first time founder and, and again, the trajectory you're on with Zero Flux and part of the journey is surrounding yourself with people that can sort of help elevate you and support you. Um, you know, I know you have a, a couple strong industry advisors providing that support to you, sort of how they've been able to, I guess, help you get to where you are as of today. Yeah. Having a strong network of people who you personally respect and uh, you can't dismiss their views. Uh, is important. So from previous CEOs I've worked with who've been very supportive, uh, just industry peers, 
but probably the yeah the the single biggest influence on us from an advisory perspective is Benji Chudiak. So uh, Benji Chudiak, as most people know, obviously an industry figure, investor, and entrepreneur in the space, but also as well you know from his time as the MD at Donbass Sports, you know which is essentially the backbone pricing for US sports for most operators. And so Benji brings a wealth of experience to him. And so after I went out to ICE in London for the first time in the, the initial year of the business, I went out there and I walked the entire floor. I, I'd never been to a conference floor. I walked the floor and I was, you know, I was quite sure I had my iPad with my ideas on it, slide deck. And I went around and I got my ass kicked. The one guy told me, go away. I'm here to sell, not to buy. I was like, whoa. And, and I, cause I didn't have a booth. I, you know, I was, I was, I was in the poverty booth out of the uh, coffee shop. And so I, I absolutely got torn to shreds and I learned a lot of things wrong there, but I was naive. I was arrogant. I went back home and I was like, screw those guys. Yeah. Like, um, what do they know? Uh, we'll show them. A couple of weeks go by, still not making the sales, still not getting those handshakes that I wanted. So I talked to Benji Cherniak, um, answered a few emails with him because he managed to collect his contact details and we set up a Zoom call and he said, okay, show me your pitch deck. So oh, I was excited, you know, this, the, the godfather of, um, you know, the space is now looking at my material. He told me to shreds. Like he spent the next 60, 90 minutes tearing every slide in that deck and pull up. Why is this here? Get rid of the horses. Why, why do you care about this? What's your focus here? What's your point? And he did in this, um, very American style way of being direct and blunt, not because he meant it in a bad way, but just because that was his view is legitimately held view. And at the end of it, I was like, I was crushed. I don't know. I, I went outside. I was like breathing hard. I was a little bit weepy. I, I called my partner at home and said, I think I've made the wrong decision. I was like, maybe I'm not good out for running a business. And then I'm sitting on the wall, relaxing, trying to get my stuff back together. I get this email. Can you fix this? And we'll do it at the same time again tomorrow. I'm like, mother, like again. So I'm like, I, I start replying back angry. Like, are you kidding? Uh, and I, I kind of thought about it for a while. I was like, okay, I, I will engage with this. So I called a friend, they came over, we started looking at the slide deck. Okay. And I, I told them what Benji said. They're like, no way. Like, yeah, no, but we fixed it. Like, and then I went home and I spent all night working on another eight hours. I get into the co-working space in the morning, pumped, going to go in there and show this guy, I can, I can turn this around. He did the same damn thing. Like if we went through the entire slide deck, destroyed it, here are this, this is wrong. What's he focused? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I thought, but at the end of it though, it was like, you know, my, my soul had two black eyes, but I kind of reflected on it afterwards and I'm sitting outside and I wasn't as crushed that time. And I get the email, can you fix that? And we'll do it again tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, yeah like, oh, reaching, but internalized it and thought about it. And I think the thing that sunk in over the course of those two days was he was right. I was wrong and he was right. And uh, it was kind of like a very humbling experience. Because I I bought a book and I did so go off I do version three of the slide deck sit down then it's fine like he gets through the whole thing like yeah cool perfect I think we can do business damn yeah like I I turned someone who was very critical to someone who's a supporter and sort of the business and he was having a mentor like that who just cuts to it and gets to the essence of what you're looking to do is absolutely critical uh, people who don't just say yes because they're your friend in fact I. Previously, I did a project where it was basically five friends working on an idea. And what I learned is that, you know, if you surround yourself with friends and people who already agree with you, you're not going to succeed. I have got friends in the business, but you know, most people in those environments do not contribute meaningfully. 
And so having this really critical voice, but also constructively so, invaluable to us and um, one of the best experiences running a startup. Oh, that's, that's a really cool story, Steve. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, Benji is a friend of the podcast, as people know, if they've listened to probably more than three episodes of it. So, oh, sorry, Benji. <laughs> I was going to say, though, you know, one thing I, I hear in there when I hear you tell that story, Steve, is, you know, there's something to be said as well for, you know, being coachable and also being humble enough and having the humility to actually take on that feedback and action and not having the, I guess, let's say the ego to sort of resist and say, it's, it's my way or else, right? You, you made the changes, you made the adaptations and you know, it sounds like it's all worked out quite well. So uh, credit to you as well, I guess, through that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a growth experience because coming from a technical base, you know, uh, technical people like to be right. We just, we love to be right. We we can't not be right. And we will we will stay up at night worrying about not being right. Um, and so um, just going through that process of being humbled that way, I think was really constructive for us. And I, I thoroughly recommend everyone get destroyed by a professional. Another topic I want to touch upon quickly here uh, is team building and culture. And, you know, I, I believe you have a fairly globally distributed team. And, you know, obviously when you talk about distributed teams, uh, you know, culture is, is a big topic and can be tough to establish and, and maintain a culture on a distributed basis. So I'm just curious to, you know, hear a little bit about, I guess, the, the type of culture you're building at Zero Flux and sort of how you're able to build it uh, and maintain it as a distributed team. So um, one of the hardest parts for uh, distributed teams is, you know, is that you can't email culture. You can't email belief to people. In terms of the, the business and building the culture, uh, we want to be edgy, put, and get things done and innovative. And so you kind of have to lead from the front and, and um, you know, make sure that people really understand that work color, play hard. But, you know, don't forget the play. It's important that you know, people, in, uh, people enjoy what they're doing and they believe in it. So this was something I learned during my time at Entain was, um, you know, get people engaged with the product. So we would take people, I'd, I would take people out to the dog track and show them just this, this is how the process works. Uh, you know, teach people how to bet. And so when I started Zero Flux, every new starter, you know, get them out to a racetrack, show them how it goes, get them out to a sports event, show them, that, get them to physically place a few bets and tickets and make sure they understand the product and they can speak like a customer. If you can't speak like a customer, you can't sell to a customer, I, I think. And so that's important. But also as well, in terms of culture then, just that uh, teamwork and mentality, uh, have a lot of fun. Like recently, we've, we've just onboarded three new people. So one starts uh, on Monday, another one two weeks later, I'm a good designer working for us. And uh, so we just got everyone together, uh, go, go out and play pool and explain you know, one of our traditions is whoever wins pool is the CEO for the week. In terms of, you know, you get control of the air call, you get control of the music in the office, uh, have a bit of fun with it. Yeah, they could also do all my expenses and marketing stuff if they want as well. But, um, but you know, like, um, you can have a bit of fun with it. And as well, when they see the boss isn't just, I'm, I'm not just here on the mountain, even orders. I'm fixing the plumbing. I'm in the trenches, doing coding, doing sales, marketing. Uh, and I think people just engage with that. And if they see you pushing, you believing, people follow and they believe as well. Because, you know, uh, you, you get these teams where people just argumentarians and, you know, keep old warriors. And I think that's very challenging. So uh, with our international team members as well, uh, it helps that uh, I had that rapport with them previously. And so I think, you know, having that rapport with people already helps there. And, you know, people like the, these people who are remote are little islands of our culture. And as we grow those regions, we're looking at uh, those people can disseminate the culture uh, successfully. And I think that's important. You alluded to a pending announcement uh, coming up hopefully in the next week, maybe around the time this episode drops with the new Australian platform provider. 
But I guess beyond that, Steve, as you look ahead to the back half of the remaining year, uh, what are some of the other major milestones you and the team are focused on? Building in large language models, because that's what everyone's doing. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, I mean, that, that's a that's a popular buzzword. But I, I think more innovation in the product space. There's there's a lot of products that hasn't been tapped out. That's possible to do from a same game perspective. And so there's going to be a few new interesting product cases we're looking to work on. Uh, the other thing as well is like personalization of basic upsell type dynamics, because you know you've chosen team to win high total. Why not add a touchdown score? Why not add this touchdown score? Why not that ability to upsell in line in the bet slip and say, hey, do you want to add this? Because if you look at Amazon and other digital e-commerce platforms, I, I bought uh, a few years ago, I bought the first DVD box set of 24. Then I bought the second one and then suddenly get these emails. You're like, hey. And I, th- I think that level of personalization, that level of upsell, uh, it's something that really sports books aren't touching today. I, if you think that you log into a sports book, the left menu is always the same list of sports. And I don't but you know, if, if you're a esports punter, why isn't esports at the top of the list? Why isn't the whole page an esports team page? Personalization and um, the more basic levels of personalization don't exist yet, virtually in the industry. And so I think having our product positioned for that and pushing people in that direction, I think personalization will be a, a big theme for us in the coming year. Awesome. Well, that takes us to my standard closing question, Steve, which is this, if you weren't working on zero flux or in the betting industry or in any previous chapters of your career in a parallel universe, what would you be doing instead? Uh, almost certainly I would work at a snowboarding resort. Um, I've been a passionate snowboarder for years. And, uh, when I actually moved to Australia, I brought my snowboarding gear with me. I didn't realize we had snow here, but you know, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan have got a fairly good set of uh, slopes between them. And, uh, but I've always wanted to just go and, you know, do a whole season on the mountain, uh, you know, whether it's as an instructor or something, uh, I just get out there and, and, and do something that's physical. I just want to put the keyboard away for a bit and do something away from the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Something a little less sedentary than, uh, working at the computer. I can relate to that. Uh, but let's not rule that out for a future chapter. For people listening that want to get in touch with you or your team and get a better understanding of the zero flux offering, where can you point them towards to do all that? So you can reach us via uh, our website, zeroflux.io, or you can just email me, uh, steve at zeroflux.io. Generally, we'll be able to answer the questions pretty quickly. And if you want to have a demo of the product, see what we've got, or even just talk to us about the industry, yeah, we're happy to do it. I think podcasts like this, uh, we're also just networking. Generally, I think a lot of founders, they, they look for guidance in what's going on. And I think um, I, I, I'm keen to receive wisdom, but if anyone wants it, I can also just hence. Right on, Steve. Well, look, it's been uh, great having you with us today and, and getting to know you and talk more about the business and really wishing you and your team all the best for the rest of the year ahead and look forward to continuing to follow your story. Awesome. Thank you very much.